Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Something else. Here we are again. This is Something Rhymes with Purple, the podcast for people who are fascinated by words and language, where words come from, where language is going. And I'm Giles Brandreth, and I'm here with my friend... Susie Dent. And we were talking the other day about the body. Yes. Words to do with the body. And we managed to get, as it were, from head to shoulders and a little bit down the chest. But we didn't really get any further. And I think we should explore the body. I don't know if we can get right down to our toes... But let's go down to our, at least to our gut. Mm. What, it, what is there to say about the origins of words to do with the gut? Oh, my goodness. That gut feeling. I've got a gut feeling. Exactly. That's where we should start. Where What's the origin of the phrase to... gut feeling? Well, I mean, it's quite interesting because language is, is obviously following society, I guess, in that today modern medicine is hugely focused on the importance of the gut and our intestinal health. And it's said that medicine in the future is going to be customised according to the bacteria that we have in our gut and what needs to be replenished. Fecal transplant, sorry to bring this in so early, the new hot cure for many, many conditions. I'm just, so, just looking aghast I'm, at I'm, I'm, No, I'm totally you know out about of fecal touch. transplants? I don't oh know about it. I didn't know about this, this obsession oh, with the gut. The gut is our second brain, essentially. And this was clearly recognised in ancient times because the notion of the gut is the seat of our emotions rather than the heart it goes all the way um, back to, um, as I say, ancient times. And you can find it in, in um, medieval uh, medicine as well. So the gut feeling as you, is the seat of emotions. If you have a gut feeling, it's following your instincts entirely. And gut itself goes back to um, a really ancient word meaning to pour. So it's the idea of the fluids that are kind of circulating around your body. And you're now telling me that this ancient belief which our language reveals, having that gut feeling, has some scientific basis and that now people are believing that get the gut right and everything's right. Is that true? Absolutely. But expressions referencing the gut, I mean, you'll find them, uh, you know, some sort of all over English, um, to have a person's guts for garters, to hate a person's guts, to sweat your guts out. Guts are kind of energy and verve and staying power. And also Um, we think of them as being long, stringy things, don't we? Yes, arse ropes, remember? Do you remember my fantastic phrase from centuries ago when they told it as it was and bollocks were bollocks, they were your testicles? Um, Arse ropes were your intestines. Love that. I can never never get enough of that. And that's why you have guts for garters, because these arse ropes are literally... Yeah. serve as yeah, could be stringy they could be they could be braces okay well we'll get yes or garters so that's guts uh, i didn't realize it was the gut that was the source of everything there was a that obviously it was once upon a time then it became the heart well the heart is today considered to be the seat of emotion isn't it and heart famously that the symbol to heart went into the Oxford English Dictionary, but actually not the symbol itself, but the idea of hearting something, um, which has slipped into English meaning I like or I favourite, or it's all about emotion. Hearting, this is another of these verbalising of a noun. The verbing of a noun, which has to be said has been done since way before Shakespeare. 
Fine. Remember Shakespeare? Grace me no grace, not uncle me no uncle. He did it all the time. So nothing new there. But again, um, it's quite similar to the, to the guts and the intestines, actually. If you go back um, centuries, you will find that the heart was considered the seat of intelligence and intellectual uh, ability as well. So when we learn something by heart, we are learning it in a way that we will then keep it and, and contain it within our memory. To record has got the Latin cordis, meaning heart, in it, because if you're recording something, you are keeping it within your heart as something that you could then draw on in your thoughts. So the heart was more significant than the brain at It once was in those time. days, yes. And, and, you know, you would find one's heart's eye as well as your mind's eye. And when did it become a romantic association with the heart throb? Um, My heart's desire. Yeah, I think heart throb was first mentioned in the dictionaries about the sort of the early 20th century Goodness. as a heart throb of a hat, um, which is quite interesting. So it was a hat that made your pulse race um, rather than um, some kind of, you know, romantic And as we learned the other day, do you remember when you were fascinated me by talking about fascinators and their yes. origin Penises. being uh, yep. exactly phallic? So mm-hmm. that literally if you saw a hat that made your heart throb, it's making you pulse yes. with excitement. Yes. So the point is the heart also gives you excitement. That isn't, in fact, heart throb. There wasn't about romance. It was about excitement. Absolutely. So it was it was this sort of seat of emotion there. Um, and hearts and flowers, the notion of it being romantic. Because if you stop mm-hmm. to think about it, the heart is a bloody thing inside you. Yeah. It's a pump. And yet That's the idea. Is, it's sort of and, throbbing with excitement, <laughs> so to speak. Hearts and flowers? Where, where's I that? I don't know. Is? What is hearts and flowers? I've not heard that before. Oh, it's a well-known expression. Is it? Oh, yes. Well, how do you use it? Oh, it was wonderfully. Ro- oh, it was a wonderfully romantic letter she sent me. All hearts and flowers. Have you heard this, Lawrence? No. No, it's well known. Look it up. Look up the phrase "hearts and flowers." All right. Yeah, hearts and flowers goes back to eighteen ninety three. That's how jazz is. Um, overly or cloyingly sentimental or romantic originally, and then it went on to romantically pleasing circumstances. So eighteen ninety three, then nineteen eleven, and uh, yeah, there's still mentions of it in two thousand and six. So there you go. Well, what's interesting that and this is the difference between us. I think I speak a kind of Victor- late Victorian Edwardian English. Yeah. And the reason I do that is because my father was born in 1910. Mm. So he was brought up by Victorians and Edwardians. And I know I sound like him and I picked up a lot of my vocabulary from him. So I think I am, when people think, I think my English is basically 100 years out of date. But that's brilliant. My French is exactly the same because at uni I was studying the likes of Beaumarchais and Balzac and things and I never actually lived in France enough to pick up the vernacular. So I would make people roll over laughing with some of the some of the phrases that I came up with. Um, but what about phrases in English that actually involve a body part? Um, what about chancing your arm? There's a lovely story attached to that one. Tell me. Shall I tell you? We think it goes back to military men who would refer... It, it would basically be the stripes on the arm of your uniform. And if you were chancing your stripes, you were risking um, demotion. Oh. But the, the, the lovely story lies in a, a really famous incident um, during a feud between two really prominent Irish families. So they were the Ormonds and the Kildares, and you're going back to 1492 for this one. And at one point, the Earl of Ormond apparently took refuge in um, the chapter house of St. Patrick's Cathedral in Dublin. And after a while, the Earl of Kildare, who 
wanted to make peace because he was fed up with this feud. Uh, and he wanted to prove that there was no villainy intended at all. He really wanted genuine reconciliation. So it said that he cut a hole in the cathedral door or in the chapter house's door and thrust his arm through, thus literally risking his arm, which of course could have been cut off. But his hand was apparently grasped by Butler and they shook hands and it all ended very happily. I have no idea whether this has gave us a chance in your arm. It seems unlikely looking at the dates in the OED, but I love that story. I find your example of the officer or the sergeant yeah. with the stripes and he does something and he's reduced to rank, a stripe is pulled off. A bit more persuasive. Becomes, I find it a bit more persuasive. Oh, definitely, definitely. I, it's just that, you know, English has so, so so many wonderful myths and stories attached to it um, that it's, it's sometimes nice. There's another one with pulling your leg, oh, yes. which some people goes back to the slightly grisly practice of friends of people condemned to death would stand by the gallows and in order to expedite death would pull on their legs to make the noose go tighter. But actually... It's just not. to be the part of people, again, to pull someone's leg, we think, originated in criminal underground slang um, where it was to trip someone up. So a pickpocket would pull someone's leg by tripping them up and then stealing their purse. Can you hear the wind down my chimney? Yeah. I like the wind. It's, it's down your cool, chimney. It? it was good for She's, Halloween. I'm not, I'm not sure. Say, it's she, she says it's down her chimney. <laughs> <laughs> it is not a thoracough. No, absolutely. We remember what that is. In case you've forgotten or you weren't here, and we have all the episodes that are still available. Yes. So the other day... We heard what a thoracoff was, which is where you break wind at both ends. It's a, it's a naughty word. Uh, hips. We've had arms, we've had legs. In between mm. come the hips. Yeah, you're going to ask me about hipsters now, aren't I you? I am. Yes. What's the origin of being hip? Do you know what? I wish we knew. We don't think it's got anything to do with wearing trousers around your hips. And we know that it originated during the jazz age um, in America. You know, think Charlie Parker. Um, it was a female jazz singer. Um, it was a hepcat. Um, and then anyone who was kind of smooth and stylish was also a hepcat or a hipster. So hip and hep. So um, it comes from being hep well, as opposed yes, but we to don't hip. Know where hep so comes not, from either. I assumed it was sort of waving your hips around and made you I don't look, think so. No. We just It says origin disputed, frustratingly, in the OED, which means they're still looking for it. But yeah, hep, hep and hept both emerge around the same time. So it's difficult to know where the hep or hip came first, but we just don't know where it comes from. The knee bone meets the thigh bone. The thigh bone meets the. Is this the do the hokey cokey? Oh no, it's it's an old song. <laughs> okay. What about legs? Shake it all about. Yeah, shake a leg. Okay. Well, this is quite an interesting one. Um, we think that I hadn't even thought about this until today, but we think that the shout "shake a leg" was given to sailors who might have their girlfriends or wives staying overnight, and um, the bosun or the um, whoever was in charge of getting people um, up and about on a sub or on a ship would come and shout "shake a leg," and. It, it said, and it sounds pretty implausible, but I love it anyway, uh, that this any kind of hairy male leg that kind of came out of the bed was fine and they had to get up, but any sort of smooth and soft one was allowed to stay in bed. Oh, you could shake a leg. Shake and, a leg. And if it's a lady's leg, you can stay hidden you're beneath right. the bedclothes. Yeah, you're all right. What um, about the bee's knees? The bee's knees, just one of many fanciful expressions that came about in the uh, 1920s, 1930s, kind of, you know, this sort of swinging era where um, they just loved to mess around with words. So there are other, other ones, which I think I've mentioned in one of my trios before, which is to absquatulate, which is to leave in a hurry. They loved inventing new silly words. Um, but the bee's knees, nothing to do with the lovely insects. It just sounded good for the acme of 
excellence. And there were loads of other riffs on that, like um, the cat. Well, we know the cat's whiskers, but there was also the elephant's adenoids, the kipper's knickers, and of course the dog's bollocks a bit later on. We moved down from the knees to the, the ankles bollocks. and the feet. The feet, cold feet. Uh, ever wonder why you have cold feet about something? Yes, um, I'd like to know. Well, we think it may go back to the story of a gambler who was on a losing streak and didn't want to lose face, another body part, and so left the table. Instead of saying, I don't want to play anymore because I'm losing, he complained of cold feet. Um, and that was why he had to go, because he didn't have the courage to stay on and see the game through. And I need. It's nice, isn't it? I mean, as always with these things, they may just be missed, been sort of distributed and propagated for centuries, but I I love it anyway. Putting your foot in it? Put your foot in it. There was a really old, uh, I think it was medieval saying, which is the the bishop has put his foot in it. If you'd burnt your food, it was said that the bishop had put his foot in it. And nobody has a clue where that expression came from um, at all, which... It's just totally bemusing. The bishop had put his foot in it. And what about putting your foot in your mouth? Foot in it? Well, that's podiatide, isn't it? Do you remember that was one of my trios um, from last time? Podiatide is the act of putting a foot in your mouth. And how old is that as an expression? To put one's foot in one's mouth, to say something tactless or embarrassing, 1879. And to put one's foot in generally is to get into any difficulties or trouble, to make a mistake or blunder. So it doesn't have to be in your mouth. Hand over fist. Yes, this was nautical as well. So if you imagine climbing up a rope, your hands are gradually climbing up one hand over the other, one hand over the other as you're going up it. Um, so it's with rapid and continual advances. Oh, so the were, idea we were moving forward hand over fist hand indicates over fist. that we're making good progress. Exactly. Oh, and um, even uh, linguists and lexicographers can get things badly wrong. For ages, I used to think to make a fist of something was to make a right hash of it. And I remember Richard Whiteley on Countdown using it once. To a contestant, he said, well, you made a fist of that. And I thought, how rude. That's very unlike Richard. But actually, it means the exact opposite. As in make a good fist. It means a good fist. It's close, in that expression, it's closely related to the idea of a hand, isn't to give somebody a hand. And to make a fist of it was to get to grips with it and do a good job. Before we leave our legs for a little break, tell me about... We have the rule of thumb. I have to do the rule of thumb as well. Yes. Well, give me a rule of thumb. Okay, rule of thumb. Again, story uh, associated with this one is said to derive from an old English law that allowed a man to beat his wife with a stick so long as it was no thicker than his thumb. And um, a judge called Sir Francis Buller is reported uh, to have made this ruling. And we do know there was a cartoon attacking him and caricaturing him as Judge Thumb. And it shows a man beating a fleeing woman and Buller himself carrying two bundles of sticks. And the caption reads, Thumbsticks for family correction, warranted lawful. But actually, although Buller was pretty harsh and apparently pretty arrogant, there's no evidence that he ever made that ruling. And it's much more likely that it's an approximation. You know, rule of thumb was it's just it's this kind of rough, rough guess. Yes. And also it's like an inch or something, isn't it? Exactly. Exactly. What about legs akimbo? Legs akimbo. Um, yes. This this one always sounds Japanese, don't you think? But actually it goes back to an old Norse um, expression. To be akimbo is with your hand on your hips and your elbows turned outwards so your arms akimbo are ah. if you're doing that but legs akimbo is where everything is flung out haphazardly and um, it does go back to the old Norse um, in the kenabo which meant bent in a curve like a horseshoe 
Legs akimbo. Legs akimbo. Knees akimbo. Yes. What about, oh, uh, toe rag. That's one I get asked about a lot. What's a toe rag? Toe rag, we well, think. it's a horrid expression. He's a toe rag. It's not very nice. And it also shows how vagrants and the homeless, etc., have been viewed in the past and indeed probably still are. Uh, it's the idea of a tramp that has got no shoes and covers his feet with cloth and was seen as a kind of contemptible human being. So very unfair, that one. It's a term of abuse. Yeah. He's a terrible toe rag. Horrible, isn't it? With sad origins. Well, we'll cheer you up after the break. Cool. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? (laughs) Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. We're back. And I, I love being with Susie because so often she hits my funny bone. Hmm. But do you know what the origin of funny bone is? I'm pretty sure it's just a pun on the humorous, which is the term. And it's a homophone, isn't it? It's not spelled the same way. So it's H-U-M-E-R-U-S. And it's a pun on that. Do you think so? Yes. That's so obvious. I know, but sometimes I felt it was... English is. Really? Yeah. Hit my funny bone. Yeah. And that's because that's the part of the arm what it is. Yeah. Oh, well. I suppose so. There's some questions from listeners. One about your guts. If you want to get oh, yeah. in, in touch, by the way, you can tweet us or email us at purple uh, at somethingelse.com. That's purple at somethingelse.com. And Chris Robinson wants to know, anticipating our conversation about guts, are vile and bile the same word? Vile and bile. No, vile is connected to evil and bile is um, connected to bilious and atrobilious being something which is um, really awful. I suspect, Chris, that that is old English. Certainly, as we've said, it's linked to the whole sort of idea of medieval humours. It's the fluid secreted by the liver. So, yes, it came into English via French, but ultimately it goes back to the Latin bilis. Good. Well, the answer to this question, are vile and bile the same word? No. No. Next question. When angry, why do we vent our spleen? Well, the same idea, really. The same idea as, uh, you know, various organs of the body believed to be the seat of um, various emotions. And the spleen, again, I suspect had all sorts of um, imbalance of bodily fluids. That's the idea. So it would it would make you very irascible and very angry if you had a collection of bile around there. The v- venting is to do with the stomach, isn't it? The same word, ventre? Uh, yes. To that's... vent... Yes, that's the ventris. So I think ventricles of the heart are also linked to the stomach because of the shape of the ventricles. Do you do a lot of venting? Um, I'm told that no. I'm told that people do. I'm told that you should let people vent, and sometimes people want to just get it out and just listen instead of trying to solve the problem or answer or interrupt. You should just let them vent, mm. and that means simply letting it all spew out. Yes. Do I do it very often? No. But as we've mentioned in a, another episode, I do find lalochesia, that's the use of swearing to relieve stress, quite useful on my own. Oh, when I was at Oxford University many years ago, I went to have tutorials on the French Revolution with a very famous academic called Richard Cobb. 
and I arrived at his rooms for my first... He was at Balliol College, and I arrived outside his rooms, and inside the room I could hear this man shouting and swearing, saying, you ignorant fool, you stupid bastard, you're lower than vermin, you are ghastly, you know nothing, and terrible expletives amongst all this. And I stood outside the room, and I thought, oh, how do I... Do I go in anyway? The... the clock in the quadrangle struck three. I knew I had to knock. And so this this terrible swearing was going on inside. So eventually I knocked and the voice said, come in. And I went into the room and there was the great Professor Cobb standing alone. Oh. I looked around and he ha- he'd been venting. He'd dropped a piece of paper. He'd lost something. He couldn't find what it was. That's really interesting. And That's I really was terrified. Mm. So that's an example yeah. of what do you call it, the word swearing? Uh, Lalochesia. Lalochesia. Yes. He was letting off steam. Yes. He was venting, getting yeah. rid of it by yeah. using these expletives. I don't. I'm uh, British of a certain generation. I keep it all inside mm. and I don't necessarily think it's harmful. I believe in the stiff upper lip. Do you? Mm-hmm. But your spleen may not be thanking you for it. The spleen, as I've just ascertained, it goes back a very, very long way, the idea that it's the seat of melancholy. So we are back to black bile. Ah, yeah. the spleen is the seat of melancholy. So if you vent your spleen, you get, you're letting you things... Siphon off your black bile, hopefully, and let it filter out. Chris Robinson has one third question. Is the liver so-called because it is our live? Uh, it's no, the source of life. Live. It, uh. it is Germanic in origin. So, you know, when, um, I don't know, I, we're both vegetarians, so we won't be um, eating this. But Leberwurst in German, Leber is your liver. So liver um, came to us. I'm just double checking this. Yeah, it came to us via um, the Frisians, but it goes all the way back to um, German. And, and Leber, um, and ultimately, possibly, to an ancient Greek word meaning oily, fatty, greasy. Lovely. That's what Leberwurst is. A lovely message here from Alice Swetnam. Hello. I love, love, love something rhymes with purple and listen religiously every week. Oh, I found it is the best enjoyed in the bath after a long day. <laughs> Just thought I'd chime in on the question marks over horse teeth in this week's podcast. Oh, yeah. I'm an equine vet mm. with a particular interest in dentistry and I can confirm we still use horses' teeth to estimate their ages. Yeah. Although it's actually the incisors that are most helpful, uh, not, the, not canines. the canines. Oh, that's really interesting. This was in, to do with the expression uh, long in the tooth, wasn't it? If you're long in the tooth, you're old, and it does go back to looking a horse in the mouth uh, and ascertaining its age. So That's when, really interesting. When you Thank do you it, for that. you check out the incisors, not the yeah. canines. Yeah. Also, says Alice, in reference to an earlier podcast, I was delighted to hear of a Mr... Sweat in the bed. Oh, yes. Mm. Oh, yes. And the surname was Sweatnam. Love yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. That's um, probably sweating in the hamlet, I would imagine. Yeah. Well, I, I hate to think what kind of sweaty monsters I'm descended from in <laughs> order to bear the name Sweatnam. Far too close to Mr. Sweaty Man for my liking. <laughs> Keep up the good work. Your podcast provide me with so much relaxation and happiness. Oh, that's so nice. Isn't it I'm nice? Going to dedicate, is this Alice, did you say? Alice. I'm going to dedicate one of my trio of words to Alice. I think she'll like it. Well done. As a teaser, one more message from Emma McIntosh. This is simply a teaser. I was listening to your podcast today, as usual, while blowing glass. Ooh. See the quality of people we have listening. Oh. And you mentioned the word schmuck. As yeah. a vulgar term for penis. Yeah. In German, schmuck is jewellery. Yes, and, schmuck. Or, and jewels or crown jewels is another term 
for that's a man's really, tackle. That's really, really, uh, that's great. I love that. That's very astute. And Emma adds, I wish the two were connected, but suspect that they can't be. That's really, really interesting. I, I know that the origins, sadly, are quite different, but I've never thought about that schmuck before. And it's such a horrible, I mean, I'm always sticking up for German and it's such a beautiful language, but jewellery, schmuck, that's just not good, is it? What is good is that every week on this programme, we give you a trio of words, unusual words or interesting words, words that Susie likes and wants to share with a wider public. What are your trio this week? Um, this one, forgive me if you've done this before, but Alice's email just reminded me uh, of this. She's in the bath, relaxing, listening to us at the end of a long day. She might be sipping something nice, in which case she's having a nipenthe which is N-E-P-E-N-T-H-E, Nepenthe, and it's a drink or potion that's thought to bring forgetfulness of all your worries. Oh, Isn't that great? Nepenthe, yes. Yes, actually, I know what I've done before is I've done recipiscence, which is the return to a better frame of mind. So that is helped by a Nepenthe, which a I nepenthe. like to think Alice is sipping in the bar. Good. Yep. Word number two? Uh, word number two is something I discovered actually very recently. It was coined in uh, modern times, so not long ago, by a philosopher called Glenn Albrecht. And it's solastalgia, which is S-O-L-A-S-T-A-L-G-I-A. Now, alga is pain. So if you've got neuralgia, you've got pain in your nerves. Um, if you've got nostalgia, you have a sort of sickness for home um, if you like. So it's a homesickness nostalgia. That's how it um, translates, you know, literally. And analgesia is something that gets rid of that aljos, that pain. So solastalgia is actually the emotional and physical stress caused by environmental change. Um, and it, the, the solace bit goes back to um, solarium, meaning comfort. So it's a lovely term. And I just think, you know, given given what's happening with our climate and given how it's so much on the agenda at the moment. We needed a word, clearly, for the, the stress caused by the planet changing around us. So it's a kind of homesickness for the home you haven't left, but that's changing in, in a way that we don't like. So solastalgia. Gosh, it's quite a deep word there. It is, sorry. Have we got time for a third? Uh, well, we have got time. Um, it's a um, bit below the belt, this one, literally. Go back to guts, but I love it. It's a caca fuego. Oh, caca, we know yeah, about this. from my French childhood. Caca, caca. is poo. Yeah, it, this, a caca fuego literally means fire shitter. Sorry about that. But it, it's named after a 16th century galleon that was captured by Sir Francis Drake. It had a wonderful treasury of gold on board. But apparently it had very impressive artillery and armoury, but yet it was captured. And so Cacafuego, the nickname for the ship, slipped into English to mean a blustering braggart. So somebody who's a spitfire, but is all mouth and no trousers. Now, back to a Cacafuego. Isn't that great? That's great. Spitting. But if you want to spit praise our way, we like that. So do give us a nice review. Recommend us to a friend. If you've got a question you'd like us to answer, or you'd just like to get in touch, you can email us at purple at something else.com uh, we, we have people helping us make this. Um, it's produced by Paul Smith with additional production from Lawrence Bassett, Steve Ackerman and Gully. Gully, what a caca fuego. Whatever happened to him?